This morning, though, we're going to do what we do here at Grace. We worship God together, we open the Word together, and we see how God might be shaping and forming us to go into our week. So if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Genesis chapter 13. If you need a Bible, we got some people that have them, and they'll walk around, just slip up a hand, and we'll get a Bible to you so you can follow along. But Genesis chapter 13. So as we have launched into this new season of ministry, it just felt like we needed to go back to the beginning of our story. And uh, not the story that is on that timeline that Alan talked about, the beginning of Grace Monroe in 2010. Not even the beginning of Grace Fellowship Church back in 1983 in Tucker, Georgia. Not even the beginning of the church globally in Jerusalem in approximately 8030. But the very beginning of our story. As the story we find ourselves, the story of a God who, a good, powerful, present God who created this world, created this world to reflect his goodness. And they created man and woman to live together in intimacy and harmony with him, fully known and fully loved. Our hearts still crave what mankind experienced in the garden to be given a relationship with the God of this universe, to live vulnerable and known with one another, to be given calling and responsibility, a mission and a purpose for our lives to count, to, take, to reflect God's goodness and carry it out to the ends of the earth. Relationship, responsibility, calling, identity. But we also know that not only was mankind given a voice, they were also given a choice. That God didn't create a bunch of robots, but instead he created human beings. And he said and that love is a choice. And, and so he set them in this garden, this garden of delights. and said, I want you to, to be with me. I want to share the goodness of this world with you. I want to release you into its full potential, but walk with me. And all throughout the Bible, from the beginning of creation till today, God asks the same question over and over and over again. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust that I know what is best? Will you trust that I know you and that I want what's best for you? Will you trust me that I'm good, that I'm strong, that I'm powerful, that I can provide for you what you need when you need it, that you're not alone, that you're not stuck? Will you trust me, God asks. We also know mankind's great failure, the same failure that has been made for thousands of years and even in our own recent history, that demand to live life on our own terms, don't we? We want to be God. We want to choose what's best. I want to make life work at my pace and, and to my desires. I want to, to rule my world. God, you run the universe. Let me run my life. But we also see how quickly life derails when we move away from the God who made us, who sees us, who knows us, who loves us. And we see into that garden of delights as mankind turned their back on God and turned against one another into this place of goodness and beauty and purpose comes fear and shame and guilt and isolation and hiding. So many of the things that define our lives, if we're just honest for just a moment, if we just think about the world that we live in, what we wake up into and go to bed thinking about, What's amazing is that the Bible is this consistent story of God reclaiming his people, restoring his people 
back to his original intention in, in Eden. That though we turned our back on him, he never gave up on us. Though we quit listening to his voice, he still kept calling for us. And the same is true. It's not just a story that happened. It's a story that happens. It's a story we, we find ourselves in even right now, this morning. You're living this story. The, the question remains the same. Will you trust me, God is asking. I'm speaking into your story. I'm speaking into your life, into your anxiousness, into your depression, into your fear, into your shame, the, the baggage that you're carrying that you think defines you. And God still pursues you. Do you believe that? And so God begins this plan of redemption and pulls this family, this man and his wife, Abram and Sarah, out of the brokenness of this world and begins to carry forward his plan of redemption. We looked in Genesis uh, chapter 12 last week, and if you weren't here, you can go back and, and listen to that if, you, if you'd like, or at least go back and read it. And we see that, that God calls Abram to come forward and to leave everything that he knows, everything that's familiar to him, his father's household. And with his father's household, he's leaving a, a, a pretty set and secure future. He's leaving a livelihood, his father's calling. He's leaving his father's identity. He's leaving his father's provision and he's leaving his father's God. And he's trusting this new God that showed up to him for a new future, a new identity a new calling, new provision, a new, though not new, the true God of this universe. And so Abram leaves everything he knows, not even knowing what the future is going to hold. God just says, I'm going to show it to you. But we see in Abram a man that's willing to walk with God, to follow, to listen, and to obey. We also see very quickly that Abram, though it sets up this story as this hero epic tale, actually is just a man like the rest of us. He's not perfect. And things start off so good in chapter 12, but then they derail quickly as uh, the first thing that Abram faces when he chooses the path of obedience is famine, it's lack. And many of you know that story. You begin to follow after God and things should start working out better. But all of a sudden it just seems like you're, you're struggling just as much as before. And maybe it's even worse because surely I'm over this struggle by now. So what does Abram do? He does what everyone else around him does. When famine hits, he goes to Egypt with the rest of them. And God takes a back seat in the story for a little while. And his whole plan almost derails, but God isn't going to be thwarted that easily. Shows back up into Abram's life, saves the day, so to speak. And the question then becomes, what is Abram going to do when confronted with his greatest failure? Where, where he began to take his life into his own hands and, it be, and all of the plans began to derail. Maybe you know that feeling. And we see in Abram the, a willingness to go back to the God who called him in the first place. To go back to that place of worship. To go back to the place that he heard, first heard from God. Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt. He leaves that place that interruption. He and his wife and all that he had and Lot, his nephew, went with them into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And so for you and I in those places that we are confronted with our biggest failures, our mistakes, our de 
attempts to try to take control of our lives and watch it derail in front of us. It's the same invitation. And God invites us back to that place where he first met us. To go back to that place where we last heard his voice. That place of worship. That place of surrender. And Abram is not willing to let that mistake of his past define his future. He's not willing to let that baggage weigh, weigh him down from stepping into what God had next. And there's some of us in this room maybe carrying some baggage from last week or maybe 20 years ago that we are refusing to step into what God is holding out for us because we feel like it's already disqualified us. But the amazing thing about God is this, that he could take the lowest moments of our lives, our greatest places of shame and embarrassment, and actually craft them, redeem them into places of grace and power. That the things that you are most ashamed about, God can actually use to become the things that are most useful to him. Now, if you have a hard time believing that when you look at that man or woman in the mirror, just quit looking at yourself and look at somebody else's story. What is the most power that somebody, when somebody shares a testimony of, of freedom from addiction or the restoration of a broken relationship or, or, or that they were running after their own life of greed and pride and they come back to this place of surrender and hope and we go, amen, praise the Lord for what he did in your life. And that same person, probably right before they shared that story, looked in the mirror and goes, I'm not sure that God could use a person like me because of what happened in my life. I don't know if that resonates with anyone else. Abram's not willing to be defined by his past, but willing to continue to walk with God into the future. And so he continues to listen, continues to follow but now Abram has a different problem. Before, the, he, he began to walk with God into obedience, and, and the problem became, came from a place of lack. Here, the problem that's going to confront Abram is from a place of abundance. He's rich now. And there are some of you that have struggled with God because you weren't sure where your next paycheck is going to come from, but there are some of you that struggled with God because you didn't know what to do with everything that you had. The stress of success. All of a sudden, you're juggling all the balls and spinning all the plates and trying to make it all work, and there's a lot more questions, and there's a, a lot more pressure, and there's a lot more anxiety because there's a lot more to lose. And so the question for Abram is going to be, did he learn from his mistake in Egypt, or is he going to make the same mistake again and try to take control, try to do what he thinks is best? And what we see in chapter 13 is Abram not willing to let his possessions define him, that he's not willing to let his desires derail his relationships. And so we see a lot, his nephew who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Abram is the patriarch, meaning he's the head of the household. It all belongs to him anyway, even what belongs to Lot. Abram, doing what would be best for Abram, should just say to Lot, hey, listen, I'm in charge here. I get the best land. In fact, all your cattle belongs to me anyway. 
you're lucky to be alive because of what I've done for you. So let me take what's best and you get what's left. But we see in Abram a willingness to sacrifice himself for the sake of those around him. A willingness to let go, even when it doesn't make sense, to trust God. And maybe Abram remembers a story from the past of two brothers fighting over, fighting in a field because one of them felt like he didn't have enough. But Abram says, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you a sense of abundance. God will provide, there's enough. So separate yourself from me. In fact, if you want to go to the left, go for it. If you want to go to the right, go for it. It's interesting in Lot's response that it says that Lot looks up and he sees that the land is good. In fact, like the, the Garden of Eden, even. And because it's good, he goes after it and he moves into the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's actually the same language that mirrors Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, where it says that Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was good and pleasing to the eye, so she took and she ate. Lot looks and he sees what is pleasing to the eye, and so he takes and he goes. But notice Abram, in this place of surrender, in this place of trust. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So rise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. I love this note, that Abram didn't even look up until he heard the voice of God. Lot saw, and from his own perspective and his own eyes, he made a choice and a decision, and he went. And if you continue on in Genesis, you see how that decision played out for him. Abram doesn't look up until he hears from God. And we live in a world where the expectation is that we should get what we want now. In fact, I have this little pocket computer, and if you have any questions that you want to know anything, I mean, give me just about 30 seconds and I can get the answer for you. In fact, if I need something in my house from toilet paper to milk, I can have it here hopefully by tomorrow, at least by two days. And if it's going to take longer than two days, then there's real problems out there. I want it now. And in fact, if I have to wait for it, it's probably not worth having. But what we see over and over and over again in the Bible, and especially that we see in the lives of the patriarchs and Abram and those that came, is that God will not be hurried. And he doesn't operate on our timetable. He is not our Amazon Prime delivery man. He does what he does. And our role is to listen, to obey, and to follow. And the amazing thing is, is that we often look back 10, 20, 50 years and go, oh, oh, that's what you were doing. Oh, all of these like side cuts and seeming dead ends, and I kept trusting you, and, and all these moments or these moments that seem like years of silence, that you're actually working in the waiting and that you're, what you did ended up being best. But we don't want to wait. It's painful 
it's hard. It's scary. It takes faith. Because what if? What if this whole God thing is a sham? What if he doesn't actually show up or come through? What if the world collapses around me? And he's not left there to hold me together. But can we trust that God is at work in the waiting? And actually, God often seems more concerned about the relationship than he is about the results, about the journey than he is about the destination. That there's something that God is doing in the process that matters towards the end. And we just want to get to the end and we miss the present. We're just rushing to the next thing and we just want what's next. And God is saying, no, no, I want you now. I want your heart now. I want you to lean into me in this moment. I want you to keep listening. I want you to find those places of worship and keep your head down with me until I speak and then go. And I'm not going to give you the five-year plan or even the two-year plan or even the six-month plan. I'm just going to tell you what to do tomorrow. And it doesn't seem earth-shattering. We get that nudge, that impulse to call that friend we haven't talked to in years or to buy that person's lunch in line behind us or to go talk to that employee that we have a grievance with or, or, or to have the courage to go meet our neighbor. All these like little seemingly insignificant things when we want the big revelation and God to give us the desires of our heart. And at the end of the day, we walk this journey of waiting and listening and following and we look back and go, oh, God, you did know what you were doing. So Abram looks up and he goes. And so surely by now, I mean, we got Abram, he's had to face famine and lack. We have Abram and he's had to face the, the, the anxiety of success. And he's, he's learning to be obedient. Surely now God's promises will be fulfilled. But actually chapter 14, we get another battle. The kings of the land have uh, a fight amongst themselves. They end up taking hostage or plundering uh, Lot, uh, Abram's nephew, and all that he has. So Abram goes after it. And what we see on this journey of discovery is that Abram has to face lack and struggle, famine and battle and temptation. And in all of it, God is there with him every step of the way. And so wherever you are right now, in a place of struggle or lack or anxiety or loneliness, God is with you. He sees you. He knows you. And he loves you. Will you trust me? God asks. So after these things, skip to chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great, or I am your very great reward. But Abram said, now I love this right here, just pause. I love how honest the Bible is. Like Abram's been doing his best, and we got to give the dude credit, because there's a few chapters in our Bible, we're talking about years of his life. Like, just look back. I mean, what are we in? 2021? Think about November 2019. What is Halloween today? Uh, October 31st, 2019. Think about your life. How different is your life now? That's just two years. 
we got to give Abram some credit because God shows up again. He's like, listen, I'm going to be your shield, your protector. I'm going to be your reward, what your heart is, is, is longing for. And Abram speaks up and goes, but wait a second, God. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, a servant. God, you're going to be my reward, but where does this go? There's no one coming after me. My inheritance is going to a servant. I've gotten nothing beyond this point. My lineage is done. Sure, it was a nice conversation in the desert that you're going to bless the rest of the world through my family. There's a problem, God. I don't have a family. It's just me and Sarai, this old lady. I'm sure she's great, but she's old. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, we read that, and it sounds like one conversation, but just so you, in the Hebrew, uh, as you're reading your Bible, in the, uh, a conversation, a single conversation will not be interrupted. And so if this was just one reaction or action, interaction with God, it would have read like this. After these things, the word of the Lord came, fear not, I'm your shield, your great reward. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? I'm childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer. Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. It's a little repetitive, but that would be one conversation. But the Hebrew is very intentional to say, Abram said, but Abram said, which means it's actually two different conversations. So what's the significance? God shows up and says, I'm going to be your shield, your great reward. That's what you need to know. Abram in his struggles, his frustration goes, but God, what's going to happen? My servant's going to get all I got. I've got no family. I don't see these promises coming to pass. And God says nothing. God told him what he needed to know already. I'm your shield, your protector. I will be your reward. Abram goes again a second time. But God, I'm childless. Everything I have is going to my servant. And God steps in and speaks. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. And he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. That in that moment, God says, hey, look up and away from your life, from your circumstances, from your immediate surroundings, from your experience or your limited knowledge, what you think you can see about the future. Look up. You see those stars? That's what I'm going to do. And when God shows up, God gives him a bigger vision for his life than, what, than Abram's limited perspective. And maybe for some of you, that's where you are. God's inviting you to look up, to get a bigger vision for your life than our limited perspective, that maybe we don't see it all, we don't know it all, and we don't understand it all. In fact, it's interesting, you can almost understand God's reluctance to tell Abram anything, because Abram's going to take this little bit of knowledge that he knows that it's going to be his son. He doesn't know how or through or, or how, you know, what is going to happen here. All he knows is that his wife is barren, but he's going to have a son. So they take this little bit of limited knowledge that God does give them and they run with it down a path that ends up creating a whole lot of headache with Hagar. You may remember that story. But before we derail there, we're going to come back to this story. God says, look up. 
I'm going to do something beyond what you can even begin to imagine. And he said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, that delivered you to give you this land. And that phrase, he believed the Lord, he counted to him as righteousness. Abram's response in his heart was to hold on to what God said as true, even when he couldn't see it. And the Bible will use that moment of, God, of Abram believing God for a future he couldn't see as a picture of faith from that point forward, of, of leaning in and listening and following and trust God, even when it doesn't make sense, especially when we can't see how it's gonna work out. This moment of faith that Abram makes a choice. Okay, God, I'll trust you. And so God says to him in verse nine, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. That sounds like the 12 days of Christmas right there. And so he brought them all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. We read that and it's kind of like, okay, that's sort of a random turn of events here. It just got real bloody real fast. It's actually a really powerful thing that God is doing. And as soon as God says that to Abram, Abram knows exactly what God is leading him into. Back in, uh, in the time of Abram, everything that you, your future, your protection, everything that uh, you could hold on to was defined by the people that you were with. That was your future, that was your hope, that was your, what would protect you, would, would provide for you, was your family, your household. And so it was a really big deal when two families would join together as one family or when two kings would combine to form one kingdom and that was called a covenant. And in a covenant was this declaration that everything I have is now yours and everything that you have is now mine. We're becoming one. In fact, as weird and as gory as this uh, picture might be of cutting a bunch of animals in half and then leaning the parts against one another, you have actually probably participated in this ritual without even realizing it every time you go to a wedding. Because what happens at a wedding? You come in and they ask you, bride side or groom side? And so you sit with your people group, bride side or groom side, and the other side sits on the, on the other side of this aisle. And, and there's going to be two parties that come to the table to make this covenant, this declaration that everything I have is now yours and everything you have is mine. It's not just the marriage of two individuals, it's the marriage of two family groups. And so what they would do is they would, they would take these animals and they would, they would spread them out and they would set the, the parts across from one another so that their blood would form a, a sort of a pathway, a corridor of blood. And one people group or, uh, would stand or family group would stand on one side of that corridor of blood and the other people group would stand on the other side of that corridor of blood, at the other end of that corridor of blood. And the king or the representative, the patriarch of that family would stand at, the, at either end of that blood path. And they would, in their white robes, in this sacred ceremony, they would then walk towards each other across, down that blood path so that their footsteps in the blood would then wash and they would literally, their path would too become one until one king who was standing in front of the first group was now standing in front of the second group. And the second king who was standing in front of the second group is now standing in, the first, in front of the first group. This exchange, this powerful statement that everything I have is now yours and everything you have is now mine, two becoming one. 
Now, it wasn't just the blood that, as an act of sacrifice, or that would mix in the blood of that covenant, that it it would combine these two, it would uh, bind these two together. But there's also another declaration being made by walking, stepping into that blood, and it was simply this, that if I break this covenant, let it be done to me as it was done to these. In other words, if I break this covenant, let it be my blood that's shed that you walk through. It's a powerful statement. Kind of changes the nature of a wedding ceremony, doesn't it? Thank goodness we got rid of the animal sacrifice. But if you think about it, there's one party that stands, the groom, he comes in and he stands here. And the other party, the father of the bride and the bride, walk down that aisle and stands here. And then the pastor or the priest that stands representing God joins these two together. So they leave now back down that pathway, united as one. Something interesting happens as Abram has set the scene. He's living, he's stepping into what he, would have been, what he would have been familiar with, what he may have actually witnessed, other people groups or kingdoms uh, um, enacting as ratifying their covenants. And so God says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to confirm this covenant with you. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to get these animals, and I need you to create this corridor of blood. Abram got it, and he does it, and he sets it up. And what does God make him do? Wait. Abram's waiting for God to show up. In fact, what it says is that that he's waiting so long that the birds of the air come down and start trying to to eat at the sacrifice. It's actually an indication of how long Abram had been waiting there. I don't know if you've ever noticed like a, a squirrel gets hit by a car and it's there in the middle of the road, how long it actually takes for the buzzards to show up. It's not immediate. They're not like in the trees just waiting to zoom in as soon as the squirrel gets taken out. They kind of circle around for a while, and then they get some courage, and they make their way down. Abram's waiting long enough that the birds of the air have decided, hey, this is fair game. Let's go for it. Buffet. Abram drives them off. And then it says that Abram's still waiting. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And we see and hear another reason that maybe Abram was waiting because the other thing of the nature of the covenant was this the weaker the lesser party goes first so it actually should have been abram stepping first into that blood and you can almost imagine abram all excited god's going to confirm this covenant i'm going to get a son this is going to be amazing yeah let's do this everything you have is mine now god praise the lord everything i have is yours It's not much, but praise the Lord. We're in this together now, two becoming one. You're my God. I'm your man. And he steps up to the edge of that blood and recognizing the moment my foot goes in there, in front of the the eyes of the God who sees and knows everything, if I break this covenant, it demands my life. And Abram's not willing to step into that blood. And so he waits to see what God's going to do next. And he waits so long, and he waits so long, and he waits so long, and finally this deep and dreadful darkness falls on him. And as Abram is sleeping, vulnerable, helpless, offering nothing, bringing nothing to the table, it says that two flames, a flaming pot and a flaming torch, make their way and cross this isle of blood. 
the flames representing the presence of God, two of them, because God was saying, I am going to fulfill both sides of this covenant. In other words, God's saying, if you or I break this covenant, may it be my blood that is shed. It's a powerful statement. If you or I, God says, God who we know will not break his word, his covenant, his promises. Abram who we know guaranteed he and, his, and his, uh, the generations after him will break the covenant of faithfulness, of alliance, of solidarity. And God says, I'm bringing everything to this relationship and it's all yours. All I'm asking is that you go with me. And if you mess this up, Abram, I'll be the one to take care of it. And so years and years later, when God shows up and takes on the skin of a human being and the word becomes flesh, Jesus, who lived and dwelt among us, Jesus then living, God in the flesh, living a perfect life, fully fulfilling the covenant, then gathers with his disciples in the upper room. And he takes this loaf of bread, this symbol of Passover, symbol of God's deliverance and redemption. And he says, this is my body given for you. But then he takes this cup, the cup of Passover, the cup of redemption. And he says, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of a new covenant. And so when Jesus, when Jesus enacted at the Last Supper that we take as communion, wasn't just simply fulfilling what he did in Exodus and the Passover, it was fulfilling what God set in place all the way back in the time of Abram, when God said, out of your brokenness, out of your failures, I'm gonna call forward my people, and from your family, I'm gonna raise up a son that will bless or redeem the entire world through you. I will fulfill my promises, even to the cost of my own life. May it be my blood that is shed. And so this morning, the question remains the same. God asking, will you trust me? Will you trust me? When we look at our lives, this would absolutely terrify and delight us. That the invitation of God, when we talk about relationship with the God of this universe, is that God is saying, I want all of you. I want you to bring everything to the table. Now, in comparison, what we bring to the table compared to what he brings to the table is pretty pathetic. But him saying, I want all of it. But the amazing thing is this, I'm going to show up for you and I'm giving you everything that I have to the point that I'm just not going to walk with you. I'm going to be in you. And my covenant will be fulfilled. And my plans will be redeemed. And so I don't know where the Lord has you this morning in those seasons of waiting, in those seasons of expectation, whether God's wanting to come to you in your loneliness, in your anxiety, in your struggle, in your fear, 
or whether there's shame and guilt that you're still carrying, the baggage of your past that is keeping you from stepping into the future with God, and God is inviting you in all of those places to bring it to him, to lay it at the foot of the cross, because he has already walked that path of blood, and there is now nothing in heaven or on earth that separates you from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the forgiveness of sins. That is the blood of the covenant. That is what you and I are invited to live into. Not just about heaven one day, but about a God of the universe who chooses to walk with us, invites us into his kind of life from this moment forward. It's a wedding proposal. Will you trust me? Will you say I do? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this powerful picture of what you have done for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ, you died for us. And our brokenness and our fear and our rebellion, and you showed up. And so, Lord, I pray for each person here, God, your sons and daughters that you love, that you laid down your life for. I pray for a willingness to be honest with you, to give you room to speak, to lead. God, guard our hearts, protect us. Everything in this world is telling us to rush forward, to take control. God, will you change our minds, our ways of thinking that we would, our first posture would be to turn to you to lean into you, to trust you, to walk with you. That our relationship with you would define everything else about us. God, thank you that you walk that path of blood to us. So now, Lord, I pray we'd have the courage to come to you. And it's in your precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and as we worship together, I, whether it's in singing or maybe to get, come and get on your knees here at the altar is this picture of surrender and trust. And here on the platform, we have the elements of communion, that reminder, that symbol of that bread that was broken, that blood that was shed, that reconnects us to the heart of our God creator, our father. Also on the tables, you'll see communion. In the room around it, we have our prayer team. If there's anything we can be praying, actually, there's always something that we need to be praying about. Let somebody put a hand on their shoulder and just pray for you. So let's worship together. Come forward and let's take communion and let's lay our hearts before God. Come kneel and surrender. And let's see what God has for us this morning. Let's worship him together. <laughs>